You're listening to the Golf Science Lab, where we take a look at performance and learning through the lens of research. Hey, I'm your host, Cordy Walker, and today we are kicking off a new three-part series helping you to get better faster. And it's with two coaches who have always placed an emphasis on research and basing what they do on that. It's Corey Lundberg and Matt Wilson. And I first met Matt and Corey because of their blog, Curious Coaches, where they share what research and concepts are having the biggest impact on the way that they teach and coach. It's an awesome site. And beyond that, Corey Lundberg, he is the COO and a high-performance coach at Altus Performance Center. Uh, He launched Altus just recently with fellow coach Cameron McCormick. You might know him as the instructor to Jordan Spieth. And Matt Wilson, if you don't know him, uh, he's a longtime instructor and just recently took a position as the director, Next Generation Performance at Golf Canada. And today we're going to dive into some of the concepts of what it takes to actually get better, faster? What are some of these principles that we need to understand to accelerate our learning and accelerate the way that we practice and train? And we'll wrap up the show with a game of the week for y'all. So you can go out on the golf course and try it out. And we're talking about how to get better faster because they have a new book by the same title. And I've seen a lot of you posting about it on Twitter lately. Uh, So hopefully most of you have already picked it up. Uh, But if you haven't, you should. And the guys wanted to do something a little bit extra for you all, which is really, really cool. They're actually going to give away some coaching. Uh, and here's how you can enter to win some, some free coaching from these guys. Uh, all you have to do is get the book, leave a review on Amazon of what you thought of it, take a screenshot of that, and then tweet it out and tag one of us, whether it's a Golf Science Lab or Corey, uh, Matt, really any any way for us to see that you did that and use the hashtag better faster and you'll be entered to win and here's what you get. Yeah, we, we just had someone that read the book contact us and ask us to come out and see them and spend a day with them and then develop a pr- ongoing practice plan based on the assessment that we see. So while I don't think it's realistic that we can come out and see everybody in person because there's some other costs associated to that, what we would be happy to do and what I, I think would be of a lot of value is to once someone, whoever our winner is, once they go through the assessment plan, is that we can be that coach that guides them along you know, changing or editing the practice plan as necessary over time. So take a period of time, maybe that eight week plan, and we will personally uh, design it with tasks that we think will make the biggest impact on their games. And then have some time throughout that eight week period where we touch base with them, decide if we're doing enough to move the needle, how we can change and alter the plan, and then ultimately give them a a good program to follow over a long-term period of time to to help reach their goal. So we're excited about the opportunity to, to do that for somebody. So make sure to leave that review on Amazon, take a screenshot, and then tag one of us on Twitter so we know that you did it and use that hashtag better, faster. You're not going to miss out on this. I think every golf instructor should spend time understanding what's going on with the golfer in the ground. And here's a great explanation of why from PGA Tour instructor Mark Blackburn. From a coaching standpoint, whilst the feet may not be directly responsible for what's going on, it's a little more ankle up, the feet are a great proprioceptive 
cue for players and students right. because from a biofeedback standpoint, one of the things that's really powerful about this is that the student can actually see what they're doing, the visual representation of how hard they're pushing with the lead or the trail foot, the trail toe, the lead toe. Now all of a sudden you can actually use that to help them control what's going on here. So it's kind of you're taking it from the other end up because people are walking around all day long. Their proprioception is so good in their feet. If you want to learn more, make sure to go through the Body Track Certification. It's a fantastic program. I highly recommend that you do that. You can learn more at golfsciencelab.com slash bodytrack, B-O-D-I-T-R-A-K. If you go to that link, type that into your phone, you will be taken directly to info on the certification so you can sign up and get started. Or you can click on an image in the article along with this episode to get all the details. I highly recommend that you do. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hey, Cordy. How are you, buddy? Thank you very much for having us. Cordy, how are you? Looking forward to the chat. Thanks for having us. Yes. Yeah. No. So we first heard there from Corey and then Matt with the Canadian accent. Um, that sounds. That's... He also sounds like Kermit the Frog, the Canadian <laughs> Kermit the Frog. Uh, that's a good voice recognition there. Um, so on that note, we'll, we'll just get into Better Faster then. I'd like to hear from the Canadian Kermit. What does Better Faster, like why that phrase? Better Faster? for us means quality over quantity. And we see this sort of playing out on driving ranges and golf courses around the world, across the country, what have you may is we see a lot of people putting a lot of time and energy and effort into their games, but not seeing that great of a return for it. So in effect, what they're really doing is not getting very good slowly. And so when we think about what we can offer and sort of what has been guiding our inquiry into how do we become more effective coaches, is how do we help people get a greater return for the energy and time that they're putting into their games such that in effect, they can short circuit that process that everyone else is going through and ultimately get better faster. So we've got a bunch of people out there who are practicing ineffectively. They're not getting better very quickly at all. So by applying some of these these concepts, applying some of these, these principles that y'all talk about, people are able to get better faster. Is that kind of right? That would be accurate. Cool. I mean, let's get into some of those those reasons that people aren't getting better, maybe, and and some of these concepts that people need to apply to their game. So I, I know that you guys have a few reasons here in the book, but let's just get to a, a few of them. Corey, do you want to start us off? Yeah, to, to even start or, or begin the question a little earlier in Matt and I's career, very early on, we were we were getting a lot of erratic results. Just like golfers who are practicing, sometimes their practice works, sometimes it doesn't. As as coaches, sometimes we were having the effect that we wanted, and sometimes we weren't. And that led us to that self inquiry of trying to research some motor learning and skill acquisition topics that would help us deliver more consistent and reliable results, and ultimately be more respectful or mindful of the learner in front of us and be more responsive to their needs. And that's what helped us. And so what we wanted to do with a book is synthesize all that research down into something that's digestible and highlight a few very important concepts that have helped us as coaches and, and especially in prescribing practice activities that are effective. And the, the three biggest that we highlight in the book are one deliberate practice. We've got to be organized in the approach that we take. We have to be objective in measuring what needs to get better. 
The second part is representative learning. A lot of the times we practice in a very sterile environment of the range that doesn't do much to simulate what we encounter out on the golf course. And so we want to make sure that at times when appropriate, we're practicing in, in a representative environment, that there's context to what we're doing. So it's matching when we get out to the golf course and it's not this shock to the system of, well, I, I've been practicing on this perfect lie with a seven iron, but all of a sudden I've got a different situation and I'm not ready for that. And the last point is the motivational aspects of practice. Uh, when you're not seeing results, when practice is hard or boring, you're not likely to continue doing it. And so there's these uh, psychological underpinnings to practice that as coaches, especially, we have to be mindful of to make sure that uh, that you're going to keep at it. And so those were concepts that we wanted to dig into to try to 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 highlight for the players that read the book. And then ultimately, that's what helped us figure out the roadmap that we that we created for anybody that wants to go at this on their own. You know, this is a, a pretty complex process to try to navigate on your own. And so we, we've tried to make it as easy as possible uh, to follow a, a blueprint that that folks can organize their own practice, even uh, in some cases in the absence of a, of a coach that understands these concepts really well. Yeah. So just to summarize this book for people so they kind of understand what you're talking about is, is you start out with some of some of these reasons, some backstory, then into kind of like an assessment. Then you have these really cool like flow charts or blueprints. I'm not sure what you, you guys called these. Choose your own adventure, Cordy. Choose yeah. your own adventure. Okay. You get like to write it. your own book based on your own needs. Okay. And then we go back and in the back of the book, we have all of these like different drills and stuff from long game to short game to putting, et cetera. Super interesting. And we're going to get into kind of each section here throughout a few of these episodes. But sticking with those three reasons, Corey, that, that you just went into, let's maybe give examples or talk about each of them a little bit. So like deliberate practice, maybe, you know, like a if someone is not doing deliberate practice, what that looks like. And then after implementing some of what you talked about deliberate practices, what it would look like and after. So before and after with deliberate practice, any any ideas there? Yeah. I, mean, I think that if you go to the range right now, your local range, you're going to see a lot of people exercising. Essentially, that's what they're doing. There, there's a wasted practice opportunity because there's a cycle of tips that most people are following and they'll discard a tip when it stops working and try to search for the next one rather than attacking their practice with a little bit more of an organized and structured approach, meaning that you've assessed your skills somehow in some objective fashion and even peeling back the, the onion a, a few more layers, you've also uh, identified what sub-skills within those skills that are holding you back. And then you go about practicing in a way that attacks those. Uh, and that's, to us, that purposeful type of practice is how we would define being deliberate when you go out there and you work on your game. And, and hopefully we've provided some, some good examples of what that would look like in the book. But I, I think overall, that's what we want it to look like. You're attacking things with, with purpose. And then even building on, on what Corey said, if, if, if we can take that general large-scale framework of, of being deliberate and boil it down even further to just what occurs on each ball, when we look at sort of what's going on, and as Corey alluded to, the mass amounts of exercise that's being conducted on a local driving range, on a per-ball basis, there's not a lot of mental or cognitive energy being spent. And when we think about deliberate practice, it's someone who's keen to learn and understand what's unique about their performance. If they produce X and they get Y, why did that Y happen? What's sort of the missing variable in there? And so when we think of deliberate practice, it's being really 
mentally engaged in that learning process. It's being an active participant in the problem solving as opposed to just a passive bystander where you just hit a ball, whack it again. There's really that sort of step backwards to understand why it happened and the experimentation or implementation of a solution to correct it. So I'm looking here in the book, you've got this um, Team Altus eight-week training program. This is just like an example. And you have here a primary goal is birdie opportunity from 30 to 40%. And then these two other goals, kind of supporting goals, which are fairway percentage from 48 to 60, and then strokes gained putting from negative 0.9 to zero. So like this goal setting and this kind of, this is one part of deliberate practice then. Sure. Yeah. So when for that particular player, so all of our players in our team Altus program, every eight weeks, we I, we look at their stats, we dig in and we say, well, these are the areas that are holding us back from the performance that we're hoping for. And so rather than, you know, I think what a, a tendency of a lot of players to do and even coaches is to say, well, let's let's provide a technical intervention and rely on that exclusively where uh, that may very well be a possible solution but it needs to be supplemented with some practice activities that are going to move the needle so that's what that is designed to do so that instead of that player saying okay i need to make more birdies go out and just hit a few more balls we want them to have a more organized approach so rather than then just hit balls alone or work on some technical aspect of it. They are going to the practice tee with a menu of tasks that are designed to make an immediate impact on those areas that we've identified as being really, really important for them. And I think also what's really unique about the approach that um, you're seeing in the book with that team Altus practice plan is that they're not, and as Corey, Corey alluded to it a little bit there in, in, in that there's not this singular reduction of, or I should say this, this default to technical, the, he's, he's, the practice plans marry together the need to not only perform the movement, but to also perform the skill. And I think oftentimes those two things get separated when in, in effect they're, they're not mutually exclusive. They work synergistically together to create the performance. And I think when you look through all the exercises and the games held within that sheet, you can see that there's no removal of that idea of, of, of play from the practice exercise. It's not done in isolation from the context of the game. Yeah. I mean, when you have goals like this and you have, um, you said menu, Corey, that was like an interesting, interesting choice of words, but I really like that. Like this menu of things to do, you know, when you go train, you're training very specific things for a specific purpose, um, which obviously hits on that deliberate concept. Uh, the other idea, Matt, that you mentioned was being mentally engaged in the process. What would be an example of of that? Like what kind of questions or kind of actions would someone be taking to stay mentally engaged? First of all, an intent for each ball, whether that is uh, something they're paying attention to in their technique, whether they're trying to perform a movement a certain way, or if they're trying to achieve a certain outcome with the ball, they're, they're defining it an intent before they go ahead and, and make that physical repetition. And then on the back end, there's this period of time where they're processing all the feedback that they're getting from impact and the resulting ball flight, perhaps from an external device or another piece of feedback of guidance lying on the ground. Um, and they're processing that relative to A, their existing concept, and then B, uh, what they intended to do so that there is this self-regulatory cycle in that they're really actively processing, did the outcome match the intent? And really trying to make sure that they're getting closer and closer to to that perfect match. When there's this big di disconnect between outcome and intent, that's when 
problems tend to occur. And so we see people who are really cognitively engaged and practicing deliberately, we'll call it, um, going through that, that plan and, and reflect process religiously. So I, I have a little anecdote on that, Matt. Uh, you know, people might say, like, if, if I was going to stay engaged like that, like I could only practice for 15 minutes at this point. Uh, and that's probably true because you haven't trained that skill. Uh, we did an interview on our Game Like Training podcast with Anders Ericsson, who did a lot of this research on deliberate practice and came up with this idea. And he shared the story of, of a lot of elite level performers only practice for like two hours a day. And they spend a lot of time sleeping and like resting and taking naps. And that might seem really strange, but they put so much mental energy and they put so much work into their practice, staying mentally engaged that they're just exhausted from two hours versus working mindlessly for 12 hours. And so I, I thought that was a really interesting little story that kind of kind of uh, aligned with what you talked about there. And another anecdote, both my parents are professional musicians. So growing up in a household of, of two orchestral musicians, uh, as, as parents, I saw that firsthand. I was like, mom, you hardly practice. What's the deal? And uh, growing up as a golfer, I never really took that into consideration, which is probably why I was sort of motivated to go down this path and looking at this from a, from a coaching standpoint. But uh, that's one thing my mom always stressed was, Focus intensely for a very short amount of time, and you'll get a lot more out of it than if you don't focus for a very long period of time. Which is a little bit against like the culture, I feel like, of what we're taught in sports at the moment. But, you know, which is just that you, you don't have to work for 12 hours a day. You just have to work really well for, for maybe one or a couple. Um, I mean, it's good for us, though, that, that we know that we don't have to be able to practice for 10 hours in a day, potentially, if, if you're listening to this and just want to play golf. And Corey, that was the other motivation behind this was that you've, you've only got so much time in the day. And we know that there's a lot of golfers that they want so badly to be better. And if you're going to spend some of the time, we want a way, we want to provide a way. And our goal, our mission was to provide a way that would allow you to make the most of that limited practice time that you have. And so that's the whole idea behind it. Let's uh, let's dive on to our second thing here. We were talking about representative. How does someone be more representative in their learning without going to the golf course, maybe? It's another good question. Uh, sorry, did you say without going to the golf course? I did. So are, are, are we still talking about on a driving range here? I don't know. I mean, where does representative learning take place? Can it happen on a driving range? If you're really creative, it can. Okay, and hopefully we've provided creative. a few ways that, that allow it to be. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of ways to to vary your practice activities. So, you know, repetition without repetition is the concept that is at, at odds with practice makes perfect. Uh, that, that's a, a coaching adage that is perpetuated by, by a lot of uh, teachers and players when it might be better to instead of just repping over and over again, implement some repetition without repetition. And what that means is that you're making slight changes or modifying or adapting something, some element within each rep that you make so that it feels more golf-like. Because when we go out to the golf course, we don't hit the same shot over and over again. We're constantly having to solve a new problem. And so if you can make sure that when you're on the range, uh, you're trying to simulate some of that and you're having to solve a new problem with each rep, then there's a far greater chance that that practice time will transfer and there will be some retention 
And when you get to the golf course, you get to uh, receive the benefit of that practice time because you, you've trained in a way that is very closely aligned to what you actually experience on the golf course. Uh, so that could be hitting different yardages, that could be hitting different clubs, different types of shots, different shapes of shots. Uh, there's a, a ton of different ways that you can get creative on the range that, that help you start to simulate that. And if we just take like the perspective of, of, of aliens in space, if, if they look down at a driving range and a golf course and saw people partaking in, in, in both things, they probably think they're completely different sports. And just sort of taking a step back from what Corey said, which was perfectly on the money, when we think about what's different about golf or, or, or what the actual sport desire or demands, it, it, it demands that we come up with an ability to hit the ball from, from A to B, and A to B is going to be totally different every single time. And so is th- there is this fundamental need to be able to, to make a decision, create some sort of representation of a general movement to make the ball do the desired thing and, 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 and for you to achieve the desired outcome. And so, so this sort of repetition without repetition, yes, we're, we're training our golf skills in a, in a very specific way in the way that's golf demands us to perform them. So, I, I mean, is hitting my seven iron to the white flag, but on shot number one, I'm trying to hit a little fade and shot number two, I'm trying to hit a little, a little draw. Is that, representative enough or yeah i would say that depends i i would say that's it's it certainly is a little bit more variable um and i think representation or representativeness occurs on a sliding scale and and it also is solely dependent on or i should say heavily influenced by how skilled the golfer is i think we could all do with a little more variability and a little more representative learning in our lives as golfers but at the same time there is a cautionary point to it uh, which I know we'll probably touch on on later when we talk about motivation. But yeah, I would say changing trajectory is is sort of one way to inject a, a bit of variability and a bit of representative learning into your practice for sure. Yeah. And, and Cordy, there's another side of this that we haven't discussed yet when we're talking about being more representative. And that's not necessarily tied to skills, but tied to mindsets. So when we are on the first tee, and there are uh, 50 people around, we feel a little different than when we're on the range and no one's around and it's our 500th ball that we've hit. And so that there there needs to be ways in our practice that simulate some of the uh, emotional and, and psychological characteristics of actually playing golf so that we're more prepared to, uh, to perform well when, when we encounter them on the golf course. Uh, so that could be having a game that you have that you're required to reach some performance benchmark that you've identified before you leave, or you've got to meet this standard before you're finished with the game. And so to put a little bit of pressure on yourself and uh, make those reps feel more like what you feel like on the golf course is another way to make your practice, even on a range, more representative. One more sort of sidebar is, and we may have touched on this a little bit earlier, but representative learning and, and, and variability is, is, is great. And I think our core message here, it's, 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 it's not like we want you to eat the whole bag of chips. If we make an analogy to that, like we want you to add a few to your plate because if, if, if we're spending all our time here, there might be some other things that, that we're ignoring that are really important to our own improvement. And so I would say the, the big message that we have is, is that we're, doing a better job as, as, as people of just integrating some of this into our practice. It doesn't have to consume the entirety of the practice, but it's an important element 
of a really effective practice plan and a really critical component of sort of creating long-term learning. Yeah. And that was kind of, I asked about if like, you know, hitting a draw and a fade is enough, right? Because, because people hear representative and they're like, I can only play golf once a week. I can't get out on the course to practice. So that doesn't apply to me. Well, yeah, Cordy, that, that's a, that's a really good point is that we say that representative practice is a component to better training, but sometimes it's not the most appropriate thing to go do. Sometimes you need a really, really stable environment that doesn't feel anything like golf so that you can work on your technique. You know, while we certainly are, are deep down the rabbit hole of skill acquisition and motor learning, there are aspects of traditional practice that are 100% appropriate some of the time. If your technique is really, really poor and there's some concepts that need to be improved or some movements that need to be improved, yes, your seven iron at the white flag a bunch of times over again is probably the best use of that. But you need to, as Matt said before, there needs to be some cognition as part of that process. You have to be actively engaged in it. You have to have ways that provide you feedback that allow you to to regulate what's too much, what's not enough of whatever movement you're trying or, or whatever change you're trying to apply. So that that's the the paradox here is that there's this this pulling from both sides of the spectrum and trying to figure out where you're supposed to be and when is the hard part. And that's another goal or mission of the book is to try to provide you with a way to assess what your needs are, what your what skills need to improve, and then a way a practice environment that's most appropriate, most uh, best suited for for what that is. And that is going to fluctuate over time. That sort of sweet spot of learning, as Corey alluded to there, is, is, is really in motion. It might be different one day from the next. And so having that sort of fundamental process by which you can assess where you're at from a from a skill standpoint and a learning standpoint, provides you with the opportunity to sort of dig deeper into wherever you need to be at that particular moment in time in order to get the best bang for your buck for your effort and your time. Playing devil's advocate, I feel like I should get a theme song here or something. But um, Corey, so you, you just said that sometimes we need the seven iron to the white flag, but earlier Matt said that if you're an alien looking down, you would think that these are two different games, right? Yes. Yeah. So we've, golfers have different needs. And as Matt just said, they fluctuate over time. And I think that if we were going to put them into a few different buckets, uh, one, some golfers need a technical intervention. They need to get better. And in that case, it doesn't really need to look like golf. They need to improve their technique. Now, I think that we all default to that, you know, desire to improve our technique, uh, sometimes to a fault, sometimes too much, but it's certainly part of getting better. Uh, if you have a really non-functional base version of your technique, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good to go try to be more representative in your learning. You know, the other, the other need that we have is, is once that base version of the technique is, is pretty functional, then we need to start to layer on some diversity, trying to figure out different ways to use that technique that will better fit different situations. And then sometimes, so in that, in that case, it needs to look like golf, right? Sometimes we need to build our belief. We need an environment that possibly even artificially creates some confidence. So if I'm about to go play some big round or as a coach, you know, I, I need to be constantly mindful of how confidence may be fluctuating because we all know how important of a component of performance that is. So I might make the environment really stable uh, to that end. And the, the fourth need that we have to be mindful of is that we have to transfer 
our, our good skill and technique to the golf course. And that's when it needs to look the most representative. Uh, that's when we need to create practice tasks that really are not focused much on technique. We're not worried about the swing. We're worried about the shot more often. So yeah, I mean, that, that's, it goes back to, this is a really complicated thing to n- navigate. We do it on a daily basis as coaches and as people that do it uh, all day, every day, that's the exciting challenge of our jobs. We feel like with our experience, we're really good at it. And to think that a golfer that's immersed in it and engaged in their own game and often has the blinders on to what their weaknesses and strengths are, it's really, really hard to do. And so hopefully we're providing them a way with better, faster to, to be more successful in that endeavor. Let's hit on our last point here for today's main topic, challenge point, which is kind of this last third reason. How does this fit into the puzzle? Corey touched on it a, a while back, but it's, it's, it's really a function of, of motivation. So let's take it from a, a different context. If I'm a ninth grader in high school and I've just kind of gone through math in the normal grade one, grade two, that normal, normal progression, then all of a sudden I'm doing first year university calculus. I'm probably not going to feel very good about myself. I'm probably not going to have a really good time. Math's probably no longer going to be my thing. And my motivation to engage in math and study hard is going to, to be adversely affected. And so similarly from, from a practice standpoint, and again, we recognize that not everyone has the same amount of time to invest in their game as a, as a tour professional or, or an elite junior or amateur player. And so consequently, we need to be really, really mindful of the difficulty of the task that we're asking the golfer to engage with. Because quite frankly, the last thing we want to do is sort of put out their, their motivational fire. We need to provide them with a task that pushes them because in order to build my math skills, I need to go to, I need to complete ninth grade and 10th grade math. I can't just go right to first year university math. And similarly, we have to sort of have that same mindset when it comes to structuring tasks for the students that we work with. Or if you're the golfer trying to get better, progressing your own learning, we want to do it incrementally and gradually. And so that whole idea of locating that specific sweet spot for that specific learner at that particular moment of time has a lot to, to do with their ability to persist, which ultimately influences and affects their long-term learning. I got more to add to that if you want me to, Cordy. Fire away. Yeah, so as, as coaches, not only are we trying to get you better, but we're also trying to keep you motivated because we know that this is a process that inherit is it, are the ups and downs. It's not just a straight line from point A to point B. There's peaks and valleys to the process. And so uh, one of the things that we have to do, especially if we want you to continue practicing in an effective way, is to keep you motivated. And so, Cordy, just to reference back to the training sheet that is in the book that, as an example, shows one player some skills that we've identified that need to get better, some specific stats, and then some ways that he can go about doing it. We've baked into that process some really, really important motivational aspects our concepts, you know, one is we give them an eight week training program. And so there's an urgency to what they're doing. So it motivates them to go act and they want to go and practice a little bit. And we've also provided them with, with these defined action steps, these, uh, these training tasks. It says not, not only do you need to get better and we want you to get this much better in this amount of time, but here's exactly what you need to go and do it. And I think one of the common things that we hear, even from not, not just recreational players, but from really high performing competitive players is they just want a roadmap. They just want a blueprint. And, and that's what really motivated Matt and I to sit down and instead of just 
share some of our thoughts with our coaching peers, but to create something, some content with the golfer in mind was to try to fulfill that desire to have a roadmap, a blueprint that says, follow these steps right here to, to get there. I think that that uh, is an important part of, of staying motivated in the process rather than feeling like you're out on your own, just going through a cycle of, of, of recycling different tips that, that aren't really getting better, uh, that are any improvements are, are transient. They're, they're not permanent in how they affect your game. One of the games that I really enjoy and one of the ones that I like to see people um, engage in during their practices is this one called called Mission Impossible. And as Corey and I sort of allude to in the book, if, if, if all we have is a hammer, everything's going to look like a nail. And so we think really great players have this robust toolbox at their disposal and they have this understanding of what tool to use and when. They have this ability to sort of recognize the situation and marry that up with the most appropriate shot and then from their strategy. And so to me, this game Mission Impossible helps you see all the options and ultimately helps you recognize some of the situational cues that enable you to pick the right shot for the right situation. So it's, it's really quite a simple game. You'll take three balls, drop each ball, and you're going to hit one and sort of just pick any shot. It doesn't really need to be anything elaborate, but it, it should be a moderate to extreme difficulty. Maybe not extreme, but it, it should be moderate to, to difficult. And we want to try and get the ball up and down three different ways. We want to try it with a very, very high shot, sort of your your normal or, or stock trajectory, and then also one with, with a low trajectory. Or you could even dial it back differently and, and maybe make the low trajectory option having to use a higher lofted club or the high trajectory shot having to use a lower lofted club, so on and so forth. Ultimately, the name of the game is how many different ways can I solve this problem for how many different, I guess, a, how many times or how many different ways can I, can I solve why changing either the club and the trajectory and also just looking at uh, how to manipulate certain clubs to get different trajectories. Because ultimately what it, it'll help you do is, is just generally get this understanding or awareness of, you know what, I might think this is my best option, but really this is the better option option for me. And so what we try and do is, is, is get uh, two out of three up and down from six different locations, varying the surface, whether it be fairway rough sand, uh, the lie of the ball, being sitting down, sitting up, downhill, uphill lie, ball above your feet, ball below your feet, coming up with a myriad of different combinations and, and permutations of the shot to get that that variety um, that we're ultimately going to get whenever we're playing. So rotate around clubs then as well if you want, or just use one club or just up to, up to however you want to play the game? I like to do it by putting people in situations that they wouldn't otherwise think of. So again, that idea of hitting the high shot with a pitching wedge or the low shot with a lob wedge, learning how to use the tool to achieve different outcomes in ball flight, I think is a really important and underestimated skill that all great wedge players possess. Um, and I think one that can be, one can be learned um, in a really, really fun way. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Appreciate Corey and Matt coming on to talk with us about how to get better, faster. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or Google Play so you can catch next week's episode and so much more. Also, make sure to enter into our competition to win some free coaching from Matt and Corey. Get your book, leave a review on Amazon, take a screenshot of that review and tweet at any of us, Golf Science Lab, Corey or Matt, and use the hashtag better 
faster you'll be entered to win, not going to want to miss it. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you all next week.